The following Dharma talk was given by Jody Hojin Kimmel at the Zen Center of New York City. Hojin Sensei is the abbot of the Zen Center and head priest at Zen Mountain Monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to those of you who are here for the first time. Glad to have you here. This is from Chapter 7 of one of the uh, sutras in the Mahayana, the Vimalakirti Sutra. It's titled The Goddess. Thereupon, Manjushri, the crown prince, addressed Vimalakirti, Good sir, how should a bodhisattva regard living beings? That's how the chapter opens. Vimalakirti was a lay practitioner, wasn't a monastic at the time of the Buddha, and was considered to be equal in the realization of the Buddha. They both, but Vimalakirti was, um, um, had a family, a wife, children, and he did his dharma in the world. So he was going to communities, to brothels, to bars, and that's where he would teach the dharma with whoever he encountered. And it was said that Vimalakirti wore a white robe. So some of our seniors have a white robe, which is in the tradition of Vimalakirti, the white-robed one, he was also called. So in this uh, sutra entitled, um, this chapter 7, The Goddess, it begins with Manjushri asking, how should we regard living beings? How should we regard each other? A bodhisattva is one who is in the world um, to realize oneself and one's true nature, to, let, to have all beings be free from suffering, that everyone um, is included in that. Everyone has the potential to be a bodhisattva. So what is the skillful way for us to look at living beings? How do we enlighten them? And Vimalakirti offers this profound teaching about the nature of compassion and the skillfulness that we gain from the experience of being selfless. And we're part of that equation, too. We have, in order to save others, we also have to be prepared to be saved ourselves. So we're part of that. And one of the primary tastes, if you will, of Buddhism is that there is no solid self, no inherent fixed sense, uh, uh, inherent beingness of anyone or anything, that everything is constantly shifting and changing. So we have to keep that in mind because it's, it's got this absolute nature, this nature that's not solid and fixed. And I'll just give you a taste uh, but of how Vimalakirti answers. It's very long, but you can read it if it excites you, but just to get a sense of the language. And see if you can see in the imagery what Vimalakirti is pointing to. How should a bodhisattva regard all living beings? 
He replied, Vilmilkirti replied, Manjushri, a bodhisattva should regard all living beings as wise people, as wise people regard the reflection of moon in water, or as a magician's regard people created by magic. They should regard them as being like a face in a mirror, like the water of a mirage, like the sound of an echo, like a mass of clouds in the sky, like the previous moment of a ball of foam, like the appearance and disappearance of a bubble of water, like the core of a plantain tree, tree, like a flash of lightning, like the fifth great element, like the seventh sense medium, like a tortoise hair coat. So you might be getting a sense of the inconceivability, um, a sprout from a rotten seed. So that's how, and it goes on and on for the paragraph. And then within the uh, sutra, a little skit comes out. And that's what I want to share with you, this skit involving Shariputra. If you remember in the Heart Sutra, we chanted this question between Avalokiteshvara and Shariputra. Um, Avalokiteshvara was doing deep prajna paramita, so, and clearly saw coursing in the emptiness of all the five conditions. The five conditions are our eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. And she was coursing in the emptiness of all the five conditions. And then Shariputra engages Avalokiteshvara, almost like as the fall guy for us. How come? You know, asking these questions. And you can almost hear Shariputra, um, Avalokiteshvara going, Oh, Shariputra, let me say it again. All dharmas are forms of emptiness, not born, not destroyed, not stained. And it's like he keeps asking for us, but I don't get it. And then Avalokiteshvara says it in another way. So here, once again, Shariputra is helping us out in this sutra. Who, and Shariputra is a chief disciple of the Buddha who follows the monastic Vinaya, the laws of the monastic, the celibacy, the different rules of being a monastic. And Shariputra is kind of stuck in these ideas of purity and of the self. And all of a sudden, this, this what, what Vimalakirti offers to Manjushri this goddess appears. And in some ways, we might see Shariputra as kind of religious fundamentalism. Someone who says, this is how it is, right? This is what the law. <laughs> so the goddess has been in the room, listening in an invisible state. She is so overcome by the depth of this discussion that she makes herself visible. And in her delight and appreciation for the wisdom that has been flowing out, she showers the whole room with marvelous celestial blossoms. The flowers, when they fall, drop off the bodhisattvas. So those that are just uh, want to enlighten themselves and enlighten others and are much really open. And the blossoms just fall off of them. 
But on the disciples, the blossoms stick and they won't drop away. And the disciples keep trying to get the flowers off. off They were brushing and shaking their robes, but the flowers wouldn't come off. And the goddess asks, Reverend Shariputta, why are you trying to shake off the flowers? And Shariputra replies, Goddess, these flowers are not proper for religious persons, and so we are trying to shake them off. Shariputra refers again to this Vinaya, these rules, the old set of rules for monks, which they can't wear flowers or ornaments. It's a monastic law. And the goddess says, don't say these flowers are not in accordance with the law. Why? Because flowers make no such distinctions. You, in your thinking, have made up such distinctions. That's all. If one who has left the household life to follow the Buddha's law makes such distinctions, that is not in accordance with the law. Look at the bodhisattvas. The flowers do not stick to them because they have already cut off all thought distinctions. And she goes on this way, making the point that when we're afraid of birth and death, of the senses, of impurity, when we're afraid of who we are, truly, they can take advantage of us, these things. Every time we make a judgment and a distinction like that, we separate from the reality of the moment. Bodhisattvas are free of right and wrong, free from conceptions of good and bad, not hung up on this is the right way, this is the wrong way. The goddess concludes by saying, so long as one has not done away with such entanglements, the flowers will stick to them. Got any flowers on you? (laughs) But they will not stick to someone who has eliminated them. So picture the expression, if you can, on Shariputra's face. Maybe he's a bit discombobulated, like, what? What are you saying? What are you saying? They see themselves as wise and pure and skillful and calm, struggling to rid himself of the unlawful flowers sticking to him. And now he's being told that he's fixating on good and bad, creating this stuckness. Exasperated, he changes the subject. Isn't that what we do? Something gets pointed out and we change the subject. He asks her, how long have you been in the room? And she replies, venerable sir, my stay in this room, she, listen to the trap here, my stay in this room is about as long as your attainment of emancipation. And he falls into the trap and says, oh, so you've been here a long time. And she replies, how long has your attainment of emancipation been? And Shariputra falls silent. Ooh, she shut him up. The goddess continued, elder, you are foremost of the wise. Why do you not speak? Now when it's your turn, you do not answer the question. And Shariputra says, since liberation is inexpressible, goddess, 
I do not know what to say. The goddess then points out that Shariputra's fixed attachment to the notion of greed, anger, and ignorance, or purity and impurity, is what keeps him from true freedom, is what keeps us from true freedom. It's, it's a brilliant dialogue, culminating kind of in Shariputra's admission that even true freedom is not a thing, and therefore can't be attained. If we listen to what the Buddha said, we are free. It's more of seeing what's in the way of that, which is the things that are being pointed out. And that's the rub. It's like you, you showed up here. Why? I don't know. You chose Zen practice on a Sunday morning. But there's something operating in you that is, knows something, that, that is already free and yet is seeing something about maybe your entanglements or unhappiness and wondering, can this, can this be relieved? Can, can we be relieved from suffering? But on mid, admitting this, Shariputra changes course again. How often do we do this, too, when something, our ideas or beliefs are being poked at? We find another way to sort of defend or move away. He then asks the goddess, Goddess, what prevents you from transforming yourself out of your female state? The goddess says, Although I have sought my female state for these 12 years, I have not found it yet. Reverend Shariputra, if a magician were to incarnate a woman by magic, would you ask her, what prevents you from transforming yourself out of your female state? And Shariputra said, no. Such a woman would not really exist. So what would there be to transform? The goddess said, just so, Reverend Shariputra, all things do not really exist. Why don't you change out of your female form? In effect... She's saying, if you're so smart, why don't you take the form of a man who could then achieve ultimate enlightenment? That's what, I mean, that's what Shariputra is saying. Because at that t- in, in those days, it was in the Buddhist teachings and, and deeply believed that a woman could not attain enlightenment, that she had to be in the body of, of a male, a male body. So this is... That's why that response. She, and then women would hope for to be reborn in the next life as a, as a man so they could achieve enlightenment. But that got crumbled. Don't worry. So suddenly the goddess changes Shariputra into a goddess like herself. And she changes into Shariputra's form. Shariputra, transformed into the goddess, replied, I no longer appear in the form of a male. My body has changed into the body of a woman. I do not know what to transform. The goddess continued, If the elder could change out of the female state, then all women could also change out of their female states. All women would appear in the form of women in just the same way the elder appears in the form of a woman. 
While they are not women in reality, they appear in the form of women. With this in mind, the Buddha said, In all things there is neither male nor female. Then the goddess released her magical power, and each returned to their ordinary form. She then said to him, Reverend Shariputra, what have you done with your female form? And Shariputra replied, I neither made it nor did I change it. Goddess, just so, all things are neither made nor changed, and they are not made and not changed. That is the teaching of the Buddha. So, what is this showing us about the constructs of our mind? That's what it's showing us, the constructions of our mind. When Buddha was said, no self, and he described it as a mental construct, an idea, and we put it together and we create this notion of something fixed and this is what it is. So she's blowing that all apart. And the problem with ideas, it's okay to have ideas, but when we believe them and fixate on them and marry them, we can't be free at all. By challenging gender, which so many of us think is the most essential thing we have, this sutra is saying that even gender is an idea. And this is a very modern notion in a very old sutra. Here it is in the Vimalakiri Sutra, thousands of years old. But we each need this particular body with all its uniqueness, its unique color, shape, sexuality, for liberation to unfold. We have it. We have to have it, not ignore ours nor anyone's. And we know so much hatred against each other is generated through the mind because of the superficial appearance of a body. We know whole groups of people who are subject to genocide, slavery, massacres, and other preconceived, unacceptable differences. This is so sad. And we see how this cracks and crumbles our societies, our communities, us as individuals to be ourselves, to honor the body and not misuse anything about it, express it. In the Dhammapada, Buddha says, Mind precedes all mental states. Mind is their chief. They are all mind wrought. And although Buddha is addressing his monastics, we can easily read that as the collective mind of a group, a society, a nation, a culture, a world. When we ourselves fall into the mind state of excluding and even hating because of someone's appearance, we render them or the group invisible, unnamed, 
unsung, as we sang this morning, to all the realized women whose names have been forgotten or left unsung. Another part of the chant you might have heard is, Kanan Bodhisattva perceives the cries of the world. She awakens the heart and nothing is forsaken. She perceives the cries of the world, all beings are one essence. What kind of act or false power or privilege is in motion when, we, when someone elevates the self and puts down others because of embodiment? What kind of false power? What kind of act? What, what do we see in ourselves when we do that? What's that mind stream that we may be trying to shift and create new pathways from our conditioning. That's the practice, is to see our conditioning and create new pathways because the ones that we have create suffering, many of them. Which ones? Not all of them. How could a path of spiritual liberation possibly unfold if we turn away from the realities that particular embodiment brings? the making or changing who we are or who someone else is, are our constructs. Ideas based on what? By whom? Again, the problem is with ideas is we fixate on them. We marry them. We can't close our eyes to any denigration of any body if we want to be awake and aware and liberated, it will not work. It's not complete. We have to not bypass or look for transcending. And so much of the tradition is transcending into that nothingness, that absoluteness, that all oneness. All one includes differences the sameness and the difference as one reality, absolute and relative. One, I give you a quarter, you can't take the backside off. It's one quarter, it's got heads and tails. That's the whole makeup. You can't divide it. We have to engage each other with what we are, the physical and the formless. Over this summer, I've been uh, rereading the Way of Tenderness, by and also the bones of, of the ancestors, the shamanic bones of the ancestors, by Earthlin, Zenju Earthlin Manuel. Do you know her? Zenju, Zenju Earthlin Manuel. You should, she's, she's a great person, poet, writer, Zen priest. She's in the Suzuki Roshi lineage. And she is one person who rises fully in the truth of who she is, and shares her experience of being a black person in the Dharma and finding her truth. And her her truth is that the only way for her to live, as she sees now, is to be of benefit, to be a bodhisattva, to be of a benefit to living beings in the world. That's every one of them. That's, That's where she's emerged after all her work in the Dharma. 
And her core message, as I said, which came through years and years of wrestling with the pain of racism and discrimination, is that trying to go beyond, as I said, to transcend into some other, what, existence, ignoring the body, was not spiritual awakening. She writes, We must come through the fire of our lives to experience awakening. We are all tender and sore from the hatred, no matter where you fall on the continua with race, sexuality, and gender. We are tender in a raw sense and not necessarily in a soft and gentle way. This tenderness is of a wounded nature. Our tenderness is aching sensitivity and vulnerability. Can we be tender in the raw sense and still actively walk the path of liberation? Great question. Can we be tender in the raw sense and still actively walk the path of liberation? The body coming through the fire and not around it. Because I know many think enlightenment, I did, is something like this flash is going to come, like I'm sitting on my cushion and, or somewhere, and poo, like I'm just going to see like everything. <laughs> um, no problems, no suffering, just gone. Um, Dido Roshi used to say, you can't just sit on your cushion and say, do me. You know, we have to engage. Like we're going to suddenly float through the world. Happiness, turn in your cushion. I, I, it was, as I was writing this, this cartoon, which I said before, of Hager, Hager the Horrible. <laughs> he was this Viking, you know that cartoon? And... This cartoon shows he's going up. He wants to know about happiness. Like he's, he's like, I got to find out how to be happy. What is happiness? So each thing shows him. First, he's dressed like a very, he's going to find the wise person, somebody who knows. So he's in all his Viking outfit, you know, horns, heavy fur, huge club. And he's like all ready, and he starts walking, and like, you know, he's sweating, next frame, drops off the club, hat comes off, you know, he gets up there, and he finally, he sees this very wise-looking sage, has a white beard, of course, sitting the top of the mountain, and Hager says to him, oh, great sage, please teach me the secret of happiness. And in the end frame, it says, the the one to the last, the sage says, simplicity, self-restraint, renunciation. And the fourth frame, you see Hager scratching his head and going, is there anybody else up here I can talk to? <laughs> Mm-mm. And... Um, the, some of the literature of Buddhism, admittedly, um, has been exclusive, mostly written by men, and allows a lot of people to say, this has nothing to do with me. 
And there are many damaging, troubling stories, not just about women in our tradition, but in in the ways that we're blind um, to inclusion and how things get arranged. And this is being brought out. And we really need to understand more, like just the context, who was speaking, why it might have been said. It could have just been one unhappy person, and they happen to be the writer. So you, you can't just, you got to do a little research of like how that came about. And many American sanghas now are shaken by these revelations. They have been. And as these relationships reflect larger social structures, um, disparity in power, which is one of the greatest reasons we need to practice together. Sangha. Sangha. That's community. We need each other. It's like the rock tumbling metaphor that we all have sharp edges. And if we, if we need a place to come together to smooth, to tumble, and, and kind of hit in ways that we can help each other. Try not to quit and try our best in every way to see past the smoke screens of our past without ignoring anything that arises. And it, recently, if you saw the, I just pulled this out, in the Lion's Roar, the introduction to the, the issue is by um, Pamela Ayo Yatundi, who's the associate editor. And um, she's a co-editor of Black and Buddhist, What Buddhism Can Teach Us About Race, Resilience, Transformation, and Freedom. She's an insight meditation dharma leaders and student chaplain. And she, along with other BIPOC students um, and insight practitioners in the Twin Cities, founded the Buddhist Justice Reporter about the George Floyd um, trials they were reporting and how this, what's happening with that reflects a larger pattern in, in how we are with each other and within our sanghas. But she brings out about Buddhism in America now, and she was reflecting on how Thich Nhat Hanh said, the next Buddha may be the Sangha. She says, I believe we need to improve our resilience in the context of relationships and community. As she says, as I see it, shifting the focus from the enlightenment of one particular individual to the enlightenment of a collective of practitioners is where Buddhism in America is heading. And this conference she went to, uh, which um, Aaron went to as well, maybe some of you did, um, artfully modeled that shift by decentering Buddhist celebrities. But if we really want to continue cultivating our wisdom and rise to the level of collective Buddhahood, I believe we need to improve our resilience in the context of relationships. She says, life is full of many existential threats, discrimination, homophobia, sexism, racism, and other forms, other othering and oppression. And this can undermine our ability to be health in healthy relationships. Fortunately, Buddhist practices like mindfulness, and loving kindness and the wisdom of interdependence support our ability 
to be resilient in relationships, even when facing discrimination and oppression. She says, the third noble truth that we can be free from suffering is possible, but it needs some significant unpacking because the causes of suffering are complex and the paths of healing are many. The unpacking is done in part through Sangha. And because Sangha is also complex, healing through collective wisdom can manifest in many ways. In her opinion, she says, I love how Buddhism has taught me remarkable resilience through mindfulness, loving kindness, meditation. She says, I love people. <laughs> I imagine a future for what I love decentering, deconstructing, decolonizing, and postmodern forms of analysis and critique are certainly excellent modes of understanding and knowing. But after all, concepts have been torn apart. Shouldn't we, after the concepts are torn apart, shouldn't we recenter love, the timeless meta of parent to child that is available for all beings in all realms. So, know me by my delusions. <laughs> this is one of the best ways that we can get to know each other in Sangha. Yeah. We're all causal, karmic heaps of actions, some of which are benefit and life-giving, and we also continue to harm life. When the goddess says, when we are afraid of birth, death, of the senses of impurity, they can take advantage of us. Every time that we make a judgment and a distinction like that, we separate from the reality of the moment. How can we find each other? How else can a community of human beings find the way? I think it is that that we hold the totality of our lives, the things imposed, and trust our Buddha nature, the nature we're each born with. As Dogen, the founder of the Soto tradition, says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self, the 10,000 things can come forward and be realized as ourself, as this very body. You see, when we, when we leave go of that tight clamp on our parameters, I'm not saying you, we don't, you don't exist, but when we let go of those ideas and that, that constriction to forget the self, to study it, to forget it, then there's so much that can come forward and we realize that that is us. That the only thing that keeps us apart from the 10,000 things is our mind, our ideas. To sit on the cushion is to have the opportunity to be with, to unearth, and see clearly all that comes to sit with us all that comes to sit with us, the upsurges of old pains, the things we harbor from difficult relationships, 
and see how we can meet this with complete tenderness. See if we want to practice leaving everything or, at best, leave our obsessions with things that don't help us. We can even reverently bow to passing thoughts in as we're breathing in and out, touching the uncertainty. I remember being in the Zendo during a very intense time in my life, just breathing, and then that turned to crying, and that turned to sobbing. And I felt very separate from everyone in that moment. Everyone looked so calm and composed. And I was like, I'm not like them. I'm dying. Yeah, the I was dying. I was dying for sure. And I remembering, practice. This is it. Practice this. This is it. I was holding on to a lot. I didn't know. Turn in. See the house and how I keep building it again and again as my mind twirled. And it's a very startling, strong recognition. The runes are so familiar. The very thoughts that keep me apart are so familiar and keep me apart from engaging fully the tenderness with my own being. I don't have to get mad at my thoughts. I just need to experience them and go a little bit further. In a sense, I was just holding on to the proof that I'm me. It's not denying it. It's not saying that that these things didn't happen in my life. At that moment, it wasn't like that. It wasn't denying anything. And that was the beauty of it. It was just like not making that the house, not rebuilding a house from it. It was astounding, the sensations that were moving through my skin and up my spine. I couldn't even find the edges of my body. And when I turned toward all the hurt, which I still do in silence, in this very open, tender way that was not sore, It was not wounded. It was just a powerful presence. And in that, I felt really soft, yet so strong in the strangest way, just by letting it be. Going further than the surface of my genetics, my face, my body, my skin, my name. I didn't know if I would make it. I really didn't. I remember telling my teacher, I I just don't know what, if I'm going to make it. (laughs) Kind of looked at me. This was right there. But I felt this incredible support and intelligence taking place at the same time. So I hope when you encounter that, that you can see that's your intelligence. And this support that's taking place, that's allowing each of us to see. We're ready to see. 
there was a resting and beauty that came. It existed right within my visible self. Fear and caution made their attempts, but it was like a crumb cake. Giving ourselves so completely and accessing what your whole being is asking for, that we accept ourselves. If I can use a phrase, it wipes the you out of that you that suffers so. I was, I feel I was shown deeply a life that trusts the fluidity of life energy and how it extends into everyone and around, seen and unseen, named and unnamed. This is not to be understood as erasing the inequities we face in our relative, tangible world. No, we're not here to bypass the palpable feelings that we experience. It just relieves us of the potency of it. We still feel it, and we can then allow that to motivate us to be giving, to be skillful, to have a bodhisattvic life, to know that that's everyone. Buddha said, mind precedes all mental states. Mind is their chief. They are all mind wrought. The goddess shows Shariputra his fixations. We all have bodies so we can fully engage life. We need our bodies to experience our hearts and minds through this beneath the surface of thingness to the ground of our being. Most of us will not transcend them, perhaps until death. If the body and mind can withstand the arising and ceasing of pain and suffering, there is no need to transcend anything. That's it. If we can just be with that, where, where is there to go? Where are we going to go to? That's, that's having a body. When we truly realize that we are not contained or limited by our idea of body, our mind, or our condition, our ideas of life and death, then we're free to live a life of joy and delight. Life that's neither too spacey nor too constricted. A life that is like the air, like a bird, that bubbles in the ocean, that offers compassion where it is needed, without attachment to outcome, without partiality or fixity, without phoniness, but simple, overflowing compassion and joy. And this is what Maybe Emperor Wu, who was a famous emperor building Buddhist temples, and he met Bodhidharma. And Emperor Wu asked Bodhidharma, what is the most holy truth? What's the holiest truth ever? And Bodhidharma said, vast emptiness, nothing holy. There is no holiness. And when Wu asked him, who is standing before me? Bodhidharma just said, I don't know. 
Thank you. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.